Take your Bibles, look at Esther chapter 4. We're going to continue this morning in our look at Esther. And uh, I hope that you all have, have enjoyed this. Esther is a magnificent book. It's utterly unique in the Bible. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of anything supernatural. There are lots and lots of coincidences in the book of Esther, but the author never, never points out that there are uh, coincidences. He just rocks along telling the story. And what is behind this is that the conspicuous absence of God, absolutely no hint of God, the supernatural, anything, the author is using as a literary technique to highlight his conspicuousness, his everywhereness, or what we have titled this following Dr. Sproul's book, The Invisible Hand. It's God's invisible work and action. Now he, sometimes he, he comes and breaks into creation with things that are miraculous and wonderful and stupendous and you just, you know, you know that it was him. But 90%, 95%, maybe 99% of the time that God is extremely active in our lives is through simple divine providence. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions there's never a moment, that's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there's never a moment when God is not active in His creation. He is in everything, in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our, in our trials, in, in, in our plans. He's always involved in intimate and wonderful ways. And that is what this book of Esther is to highlight, that when you and I are facing times of trouble and suffering, we know without any shadow of a doubt that God is present. And while you may not see it, the hand of God may be utterly invisible to you, you can be sure that He is there and He is active. That He's never just standing back observing. That would be the God of Aristotle or the God of Plato or the God of... Uh, uh, other other uh, religions and philosophies, but our God is intimately involved in our lives. He's never passive, always active, always involved. Now that raises a lot of theological questions, particularly about the existence of evil and things like that. And uh, and I, I I can help you. I can't answer it, but I may be able to help you work through some of the challenges with respect to some of these things that do cause us some consternation, like the existence of evil and random uh, events that just make no sense. So let's read, the, let's read uh, Esther 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not that long. But listen carefully to the Word of God. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews." with fasting and weeping 
and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And to command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for these 30 days. And they told Mordecai and es what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Listen closely. Do you think that you're to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God. So real quickly, let me recap the story of Esther if you haven't been here. Esther is a book that is written with lots of humor, lots of satire, lots of irony, lots of tension, and then releases of tension. It is a literary masterpiece in just 10 very, very short chapters. You can read it in about 20 minutes, and I hope that many of you have. If you have not, uh, carve out a little time this afternoon and sit down and just read the story through. And if you, if you read it carefully, you'll see the humor, how the uh, author in chapter 1 and, and 2 shows how magnificent Ahasuerus 
King Xerxes and the Persian Empire, the largest and greatest empire probably that ever existed on the earth. Its geography, its riches, its military, nothing like it in the ancient world. And uh, how he tells about this glory and how powerful they are, but... The king can't even control his own wife. She refuses to come when he calls her. And so he gets angry and he deposes king Va- uh, Queen Vashti. And, uh, but he throws his king out, uh, queen out. She was a beautiful queen. Then he goes off to war. But when he comes back after losing some of the war, part of it, uh, he realizes, hey, I'm a great monarch A great monarch's got to have a beautiful uh, queen by his side. What am I going to do? So they send a decree out to the entire kingdom and they bring in virgins who are beautiful. That would have meant they went to the extent of their kingdom and brought in multiracially a bunch of different women who are beautiful. And some accounts say as many as 400, perhaps as many as 1,000 women were gathered up against their will or not, didn't matter, and brought in. And and then they had to go through 12 months of beauty treatment. They were, and you can read about this historically because Herodotus uh, did explain what what that beauty treatment was for one year. It was extraordinary. And how these women were prepped to be perfect before they were called in one by one for the king. Uh, to take advantage of them. That's where the story introduces Esther and Mordecai, her uncle. She was exceedingly beautiful, and so uh, she got caught up in the, in the collection of these young virgins, and when her turn came in, well, the idea behind this was, and there's a lot of humor and some sexual innuendo that we don't want to bring up right now, but let your mind go, because it was pretty crazy. These women had to please the king sexually, sensually, in a way that he would want them and kind of forget the rest. And Esther did it. And she pleases the king and she is uh, uh, proclaimed to be queen and they hold a, a, a feast. Everything's great. So Esther's now queen of Persia. Mordecai... Evidently, he gets floated up a little bit in his uh, uh, position as as a a functionary in the government of Persia. And in his government job, he hears of a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. According to Herodotus, there were about four or five assassination attempts on Xerxes, and the last one uh, was successful. So Mordecai, good citizen, good civil servant, goes to uh, one of the eunuchs and he tells him, go tell Esther, here's the plot and here's the guys behind the plot. And it's exposed and the two men are executed, the two eunuchs that were plotting to kill Xerxes. And Mordecai is now recorded in the uh, chronicles of the Persian kings to have saved the life of the king. And so the readers in chapter 1 and 2 were going, yes, this is great. Mordecai, he's going to be elevated. Uh, Esther, she's queen. Wow, it's got to go good. And immediately the author is brilliant. Chapter 3, God does not, or uh, Xerxes does not elevate Mordecai and Esther, but instead he elevates Haman the Agagite, 
the enemy of the Jews. Now, Haman is an, a, a descendant, perhaps, of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And I can't go into the whole story, but the Amalekites were deadly enemies of Israel. Moses had to send Joshua and the army to fight them. They were the first battle when they came out of Egypt. Hundreds of years later, King Saul was commanded by the prophet Samuel to take the army and destroy Agag, the actual king Agag, and his army and, and commit them to harem, to holy war, to destroy them utterly. Every man, every woman, every child, every animal. Yikes, come to the fishbowl. We'll talk about it. Nevertheless, Saul didn't do it. He kept Agag holding him for ransom, and he kept the best of the livestock and gave him to his men as plunder. And King Saul was out, King David was in, maybe some of you know the story. So Agag, or, or Haman, represents the paradigmatic, the emblematic enemy of God's people. He is the serpent, he is the devil, he is the enemy of God's people, representing all of the people that oppose God. So let's talk about a few things here. I think y'all are going uh, to love this. Chapter three, uh, more, chapter 3 records that Mordecai, when he finds out that Haman is elevated, he knows the history. He knows this is one of our enemies. I'm not bowing down to him. Because the king had ordered that everybody bow to, you know, pay obeisance and respect to Haman. He's the prime minister. <laughs> well, everybody's bowing down except Mordecai. And he's standing there saying, I'm not bowing down to the ancient enemy of God's people. I'm not going to do it. And he refuses to bow. This infuriates Mordecai. He goes to King Ahasuerus and he says, without saying it's the Jews, he says, there's a group of people out there that don't, they're not as good as we are, and blah, blah, blah. We need to destroy them. And I'll pay 10,000 talents. In, in other words, he bribed the king with an enormous fortune so that they could destroy this group of people. And Xerxes says, great, bring the money, go kill them. And uh, Haman gets with his advisors and they cast poor, which are lots, dice, to find an auspicious day, which was about a year later. They found a date that was going to be good, so they plot to kill the Jews. Decrees are written, messengers are sent, and the news goes out. And in chapter 3, it ends with Haman and Xerxes sitting down and having another drinking party. And by the way, Xerxes, all these Persian kings, and the Persian nobility were known for their drunkenness because they believed it was a way to worship God. Um, I won't make the joke I was going to say. Never mind. Okay, so anyway, it, 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 it's very interesting. It's hard for us to enter into those cultures from thousands of years ago, but they were very interesting. So they have a drinking party. News goes out, and then you hear what happened. Mordecai tears his clothes and all this. So here we have the humor, the uh, satire, uh, the poking fun at this great monarch in chapters 1 and 2, and in 3, an ominous, ominous turn, and then in 4, it looks like, oh my gosh, God's people are going to be destroyed, and God is nowhere to be found. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, 
That's not an uncommon story. I cannot tell you how many times I have been on my face, on the ground, asking, where are you? What? I, come on. I mean, really? I'm dying here. Things are not going well here. Where are you? Please, do something. Show up. Help. And it's like that. Silence. You know, nothing. And then sometimes the help does come. Sometimes it doesn't. But you're, you, if you're a human being, you've experienced this. If you're a Christian, you certainly have experienced it. These times of utter silence, like, where are you? This book answers that. I'm not anywhere. I'm right here, God is saying. So let's look at our, first of all, our response. A healthy, helpful response to evil, to suffering, to injustice, to, to suffering that's undeserved. He tore his clothes. Look at the first few verses. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went through the city to the gate of the king, wailing bitterly. You can imagine, he was a nut. He's out there in the public with his clothes all filthy with ashes, and he's wailing and crying out and beating his chest. Something that, you know, Americans are pretty reserved. We would never do anything like that. But if you leave this country and you go to some other countries, like in the Middle East, where my family is from, they're crazy. They're emotional. They scream and yell. And, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable. But they know how to lament. They know how to grieve. They know how to enter into the what you are. We are humans. And you can't step back from this type of evil. We're talking about genocide here. Every man, woman, and child across the kingdom who was a Jew. Execution. On a particular day. That meant the army, everybody was going to go after them. And steal, take their property, their homes, and everything else. Happened in Germany, by the way. In World War, during uh, World War II. He goes to the king gate weeping bitterly. So listen, let me say a couple things about this kind of response. Now maybe you're not wired that way that you can't grieve, but I know all of you have wept. I know all of you have wept bitter tears in private over things that you wanted God to do for you and it just doesn't seem like it's happening. Or you've had some setback or your marriage is on the, the rocks or you've had a child go uh, uh, off the rails or whatever the case is. You can't get the job you thought you were going to get. I don't know. There's no end to it. And you've cried out to God and you've wept and you've lamented. There are unhealthy and unhelpful responses to setbacks and challenges and life's bitter pill. Okay? One of them is to suppress the emotions. Therapists will tell you that to stuff it, to bury it, to deny your feelings and to deny your emotions is unhealthy. And reformed people in particular because we are big heads. One of the drawings that we do in spiritual dynamics. Huge head. These are reformed people. Big, big head. Little tiny body. And a microscopic heart which we would say represents emotions because we're scared to death of them. Oh, no, I got to be logical, I got to be thinking, I got to be When you were born again, when you gave your life to Jesus, he didn't redeem you know every part of you except your emotions. He actually redeemed your emotions as well. And I would like to see more of us 
trusting our emotions, thinking that, you know, God is speaking to us. In, he, he's moving in our hearts. And maybe when those things are coming up, they need to be checked, but maybe not. Maybe we need to check our thinking. You know, you can think badly and wrongly, and not all logic works out either. So don't suppress. Let your emotions go. If you don't want to do it in public, fine, but don't stuff it. Another one is presumption and naivete. We see this in church all the time. People will come in with these trite sayings. And so oh, everything's going to work out. Don't worry, there's a reason. Oh, there's a silver lining. You know, in churches, that is just harmful. It hurts people. They're suffering. Their hearts are broken. There's something going on and you tell them, oh, it's going to work out. You don't know that. You don't know that it's going to work out. It's just a platitude. What about not saying anything and just sit down with them and cry your eyes out? Or maybe just sit down next to them and rejoice, say, I got my job, thank God. And yet let your emotions go. Now, I realize it's not for everybody and we all are different, but presumption can really hurt. Oh, something good's going to come out for you. Uh, God has a, another. Uh, spouse for you uh, there's another job out there that may be better you know what you may die in poverty why do we say those things to people they're hurtful and harmful anyway I'll get off that the next one is fatalism fatalism is something that's just despair it's inshallah you know the, the you know, whatever God's will I've talked about this so many times it leads to a certain degree of hopelessness and a degree of passivity and paralysis. In other words, oh, well, it's just God's will. There's nothing I can do. And we just shut down. And we kind of wait. We put everything on pause. And folks, if your house is burning down, don't do that. Get out of the house. You see, passivity and uh, this fatalistic the last one, and I've talked to this to, to the point where I just blew in the face, but I'm going to say it again. One of the worst sins a human being can commit is this one. Cynicism. How many times have I warned this church about cynicism? It is an evil, destructive sin. It's the sour face that people, eh, everything is bad. Oh, that'll never work. Oh, this will never work. Oh, uh, you know, and cynicism will take you to anger, either blow anger or control stuffed anger. And the best diagnostic in the world is what gets under your craw. What bothers you? What makes you cynical? Cynical is a, is a kind of pride that is odious to God. When He has spun out into this world an enormously beautiful creation with innumerable people who are good people. They're fine people. Yeah, they're sinners and we know all that. But I mean, most people aren't out there eating their children and robbing banks. There are a few, but the majority of people just want to live in peace, regardless of their religion. And some of the most skeptical and cynical and negative people that I have ever met are Christians. Stop it! Stop it! 
Can I get an amen? Stop. If you're a cynical person, go find out why you're so cynical. And if you're in this church, you have very little reason because there's a lot of nice cars out there. Yes? And I'll bet you most of you have refrigerators full of food. And I'll bet you some of you might have a savings account. So when we throw out cynicism, we are doing something that is a slap in God's face. Especially for affluent Westerners. Come on, folks. Healthy, healthy and helpful response, Mordecai, Esther. Not just as an example, but as a pattern for what you do when you're facing these types of things that are horrendous and terrible. He laments, he acknowledges, he embraces it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He doesn't mitigate it or ameliorate it in any way. He doesn't downplay it. You know, we come to church, people say, how are you feeling? And you always want to say what? You've got to say it. Why, what do you have to say? When you come to church, somebody says, how are you? I'm blessed. I'm better than I deserve. I want to, when you, don't any of you say that. I'm going to slap you. Now, you may be, uh, you know, I'm kidding, tongue-in-cheek, come on. But who says, hey, how you doing? You know, this week was, ah, I had a bad week. I mean, it was really bad. And we are actually willing to share our pain with someone else because we feel safe. We know that they will treat us with compassion, that they'll weep when we weep, they'll rejoice when we rejoice. Folks, time to take the mask off. This world is full of a bunch of fakes, Yes? Let's not be them. Let's be honest with one another. And then action. This is what I want to talk about for a few. And I've got to do this quickly. But listen. Once you've lamented, once you've, once you've poured or rejoiced, whatever the emotion, once you've, once you've gotten in touch with the reality of what's happening, God calls us to act. Christians are never just to sit back. Now, there is a kind of uh, uh, holy waiting, a kind of... Uh, you know, a posture where you say, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to wait and, and be patient. But there's also lots of times when we should act, but we wait because we're afraid or we're a risk averse or we don't want to do this or that. Or we start praying these pietistic prayers of, oh, i got to know what God's will is and i got to know what God's will is. Look, folks, I'm going to be very blunt with you. This is God's will. Right here. There's nothing that you need to know about God's will that's not right here. And anything that is God's will that is not right here, you will only know in a minute. And that's what in Reformed theology we call His decretive will. Nobody knows His decretive will. Only He knows His decretive will. And only when it happens do you know that was His decretive will. But the rest, we are not to be uh, trying to peek behind the curtain all the time and get into the eternal decrees, what the confession calls the eternal decrees of God's Westminster uh, uh, Confession, chapter 3, go read it, shorter catechism. God executes His decrees. 
in the works of creation and providence. That's from the Shorter Catechism. God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. That's how it's happening. And you see it every day. The car just went by. That was God's will. I just moved my hand like that. That was God's will. But I'm not a puppet. And how they intersect is a mystery. We don't know. But we're not supposed to try to figure all that out. We're supposed to obey this. Now, I know we're Presbyterians, but that was worth an amen. Hey, didn't you love that? This is His will. I love Mark Twain. He says, you know, the parts of the Bible I don't understand is not what bothers me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand. Those bother me. But we want to go into all this esoteric and Gnostic world and try to find all these secret things when we haven't even mastered this yet. We haven't even approached. We're amateurs. So get in there, folks, and trust Him. Do something. Mordecai knew the history of Israel. He knew they were in Persia because of their rebellion. But he does not bring any of that up. He moves with unbelievable posture straight to God. And he weeps and laments and he says, we're going to do something about this. Yeah, we deserved it. We deserve to be here in Persia. We slapped our God in the face. We ignored Him. But no, I'm not going to bring that up. I'm going to go to His faithfulness and His truth. And while it's unstated in the text, it is just screaming from the page because it's absent. Everybody that read this had the rest of the Bible too. They knew what the promises were. And so the author, is, he's, he's genius, he's brilliant. He's saying, every time you say he's not there, oh yeah, he's there. Because wow, you keep reading, you see it all happening. So evil and injustice and suffering, these dark providences are not easy to negotiate. And so we need people. You need a good church. You need elders and deacons and women's council and friends and journey leaders and Bible study leaders. We need people around us that can help us. Now, sometimes it's not a lot of people because you can't trust everybody. Now, you can trust me. I am utterly and completely trustworthy. There is no one as trustworthy as me. And nobody is humble. Guys, we got to get some humor going in this church. All right. So he goes to Esther uh, in verses, look at verses 4 and 9. Her reaction is to enter into, uh, he, she didn't know what was going on yet, but she entered in. She says, I've got to help my uncle. Something's happened. I don't know what it is. So she sends him clothes and she sends her servants. He refuses and he sends a message back. Something horrible has happened. And I, your uncle, who you have to obey, I command you to go to the king and I command you to tell the king what's happening and to save us. But look at 10 and 11. This is Esther's dilemma. And folks, I'll be very honest. If you're a person of faith, your faith will be challenged and you will have to take risks and you will have to trust Him and you will be disappointed and you're not going to get everything you want because some of it's not good for you, even if you got it. 
And you may not get it just because we live in a lousy, fallen, sinful world that our Savior came to correct and there's just bad stuff out there like Haman. You know, one of these days he's going to gather these people up and he's going to throw them into a furnace. Do you believe your Bible? One of these days he's going to do that. He's going to gather these people up and into a furnace and something amazing is going to happen. The world is going to be recreated. That's the gospel. So she tells him, 10 and 11, look at it. I can't go to the king. I haven't been called. And if you go into the king, and there's reasons why they didn't let anybody go into the king, because his life was always in danger. So they limited the number of people, and you had to be a special person to get in there. And if you did happen to show up and poke your head around the column and look, and he didn't point his scepter at you, there were guards everywhere, and it was off with your head. You know, queen of hearts. So what does... Mordecai, do you got to love this? This is beautiful. This is a famous part of this book. Is chapter four. Mordecai makes his reaction, lament, honesty, get help, go act, trust, get out there. But then Mordecai and Esther do something that is incredible. If you don't get it, you got to see it. A declaration, not of independence, a declaration of dependence. Listen to Mordecai. Don't think because you're in the palace you're going to escape. Beware of churches out there that all their message is is you deserve to have an abundant life and millions of dollars and great cars and live in perfect health. You deserve all that. And if you don't have it, something's wrong with you. Beware. Mordecai tells her the truth. He says, don't... hey." Don't think you're here, that you're safe. You're not going to escape and neither is your father's family because everybody's going to die over this. Everyone is going to die. Then he says one of the greatest phrases in your Bible. And in the Old Testament, it's in many, many places. And it's the phrase in Hebrew, Meyudeh. Who knows what God will do? When you, when you go in your concordance and you see all the places where God, like, like when, the, when David committed adultery and his child is dying, Bathsheba's child is dying, he fasts and he, he goes into extremities to get God to change his mind. And then once the child dies, he calls his servants and says, Give me, I want food, I want drink, I want clean clothes. And they go, What are you doing? And David says to his servants, Meudea. Who knows what God will do? In other words, I'm a human being. I don't know what He'll do. I need Him. I depend on Him. I'm going to throw myself at His feet. I don't know what He's going to do. He says the eternal decrees are not for me to know. And so I'm going to back up into my humanity and I'm going to trust Him. Who knows what He will do? It's not fatalism, folks. It is not... Uh, inshallah, it's not that. It is a profound declaration of dependence, of acknowledgement of our need and our need of God. And her response, another declaration of dependence, if I perish, I perish. That again is not fatalism. That is simply saying, I understand what you said. Who knows what he will do? I will respond in like kind. I will trust my life to 
the invisible God, of course, he's back there. You ought to know that. He's all over the page. If I perish, I perish. Unbelievable. So they fast and they don't pray. They just fast and that's also uh, supposed to be absent. You're supposed to think, how come he didn't mention uh, prayer and fasting? Because they always go together. Well, because they want you to think about prayer. This guy's a genius or the woman. Whoever wrote this is a wonderful writer. Who knows what God will do? If I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. They throw themselves at God's mercy. And in chapter 5, which we'll look at next week, you start to see the grand reversal that really characterizes the whole book. But I don't have time to get into it. You see, when you read this book as a Christian, now let's come into our world, our world. We know the stories because we've read them. We know the New Testament because we have read it. I hope you've read it, or at least parts of it. And when you hear the words, may you dare, who knows what God will do. And if you hear the words of Esther, if I perish, I perish, I pray to God that you put those words in the lips of your Savior. Who knows what God will do? Jesus did know what God would do, and He still went to the cross. And when He was there, the King of the universe did not hold out the golden scepter and spare your Savior's life. He withheld it. And Jesus says, if I perish, I perish. But you will live. Why? Because I perish. Esther was spared. Mordecai was spared. Abraham was spared. Isaac was spared. Moses was spared. Everybody was spared but Him. And when you hear who knows what God will do, Jesus knew He went anyway. When the scepter should have been held out to him, it wasn't. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies for you. He perishes for you. But in that grave, the one who thought he had the power of death, Haman and Xerxes, these great fake kings who thought they had the power of death and life, no, no. The true king who had the power of life and death is in a tomb in the ground and when the time came, he took the sword of his spirit and plunged it into the heart of the dragon. He took the serpent of Genesis 3 and put him on the ground and crushed his skull. He pushed the rock away and he walked out and he said, yeah, I perish, but now you live because I live. Who has the power of life and death? Jesus. For us. Let me close with this. I, I look for opportunities every year to give you some of things that have, have been transformational in my life. Maybe they won't do it for you, but James Stewart, who was a great Presbyterian preacher of the last century, 
uh, has been somebody that my heart has resonated with. So I look for opportunities to share these quotes. For those of you that have heard it for the past 18 years, forgive me. Um, but James Stewart, this great Presbyterian minister, here's what he said about Christ's victory. Listen to these unbelievable words. It is a glorious phrase. He led captivity captive. The very triumph of his foes, it means, he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to a tree, not knowing that by the very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would turn it into a a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that by that very act, they were lifting up the gates of the universe so the king could come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishable in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned, helpless, defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. Praise be to God. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for this encouraging word. It encourages me because, I don't know, my... uh, You've been absent at least sometimes in my life and I don't like it. (laughs) I want you to be more present. And I know there's many here that are like that who's, they just want to feel your presence and have you there. But, but please reassure us, every one of us, Father, that even when we don't feel you, we don't think you're there, when, when it just seems like you're utterly absent, that you, in fact, may be closer than we can ever imagine. And I want you to reassure this church, our congregation of that, and And that they will then live in that way. That you are present. That you love them and poured out your life for them. And that there's never one moment that that you hold your nose against them. Never. That even when we are in our worst shape, you come in and gather us up in your arms of love. And I know, Father, there's a twinkle in your eye. That if we could see it, What it communicates to us is, will you trust me? Don't be afraid. Jump into my arms and see what I will do. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.